Welcome to the Cascade Church Portland podcast. We're a church that works to be both safe to be and safe to grow through our commitment to intentionality, diversity, curiosity, prayer, and advocacy. Enjoy! May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Uh, so before I met Woofy, a.k.a. Kurt Kroon. See, we're, we're going to go there. Um, I grew up in Kaiser, Oregon, 97303, not too far south from all y'all in southeast Portland. I was a freshman in high school, and I was in the school musical, Grease. Hello, anyone? Can we do a little bit here? Hey! There we go. I saw a couple of you. We'll do, we'll do that afterwards. We'll, we'll get on social media doing our... Um, do, what is that called? Hand jive. I almost called it Grease Lightning, and I was not in that part of the show. Um, but I felt on top of the world having gotten into Greece, but I also felt on the bottom of the totem pole being a freshman in high school. So my friend Birdie, that was not her real name, but apparently we are camping out in, a na- in the land of nicknames this morning. Birdie and I decided we would go back to our middle school. There was a 45-minute reprieve between the time in which school got out and we had to go to play practice. So Birdie and I would go back to Whitaker Middle School. We would say hi to our choir teacher, Mr. McGladry. We would feel like a million bucks, and then we would get back in time to go to play practice. So we went to Whitaker. We said hi to Mr. McGladry. We felt good about ourselves. We took the city bus back to McNary High School. And the school bus, or the city bus, dropped us off at the back of the school. And we looked at our watches, because we wore watches in that time frame, in the early 90s. And uh, we said, wow, we've got about 10 minutes. We better make this quick. But I remember looking, and the high school, which kind of looked like a prison, was was in the background, and there was this huge fence, like this tall 10, 15-foot chain-link fence, and all of the football fields, and then you got to the high school. You, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. Do you know McNary? <laughs> Heart and soul right here. So um, they, the, the bus drops us off, and I'm looking at that, and I'm like, there is no way. How are we supposed to get to play practice? And Bertie goes, Kara, we're going to hop the fence. And I was like, I'm not a fence hopper. <laughs> and she's like, Ain't no, pro- no problem here. So Birdie, she was a professional fence hopper. So she literally like climbed up the fence and was up and down in approximately 2.5 seconds. And I, 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 I look at myself and I'm like, I don't know how to hop fences. But I start trying. And you guys, some of you know how to hop fences. But I am not a professional fence hopper. So I began to climb up to the top of that fence, and it hurt. And I got up to the top. And if you have ever been to the top of the fence, or if you have not been to the top of a fence recently, of a chain link fence, there are these little tiny spiky things at said top of the fence. And so I get up on top, and it is high up in the air. And I swing my leg over. And y'all, I'm looking good. I had on my white stretch pants, which are making a comeback, but my white stirrups, might I add. (laughs) My penny loafers with real pennies in the bottom. This awesome sweater, Argyle sweater, kind of went down here. And then my Esprit bag, which was flapping in the wind up on top of the fence. Some of you know what an Esprit bag is. 
Some of you are not that fashion savvy and don't. <laughs> it was an iconic part of the late, late 80s and early 90s. Please Google it right now. Don't listen to what I say. Just Google Esprit bag. So there I was on the top of the fence, and every time I tried to hoist my other leg so that I could get over, my stretch pants got, got caught on the little spiky things, and my poor, fragile hands started getting all bloody along with my white stretch pants. And Birdie is down at the bottom, and she's like, Kara, hurry up. And I'm like, I can't, I can't. And my Esprit bag is flapping. And finally she goes, Kara, and there were all three of the football teams, the varsity, the JV, and the freshman teams who had stopped their practices. <laughs> and along with their coaches were looking and pointing at the girl at the top of the fence. And behind was the three-lane road. And there were the cars driving by, pointing out the window with the girls stuck at the top of the fence. And the long story made short is that I couldn't actually get over the fence because of said stretch pants, amongst other incredible outfit accoutrements. But um, Birdie had to come back up and over. I had to go down, and then we began this long walk about 200 yards down, and there was an opening in the fence. There's now a road which we'll talk about later, you and me. But um, we were late to play practice, but we made it. The show went on. But I tell you that story, maybe for a little bit of a throwback Sunday, but also I think about how, for me, the particularities of my personhood, in a sense, were kind of exposed for all to see. The particularities of my outfit, maybe, the particularities of my personhood, um, of, my, of my personality, excuse me, the particularities of who I was was on display for the rest of the world, maybe in a very superficial sort of way. But a big part of my journey has also been realizing that this story isn't about me. And the text that Kurt read from what we're going to talk about today and what I want to dig into is the particularities of personhood as it related to this woman who stood at the well with Jesus. Because the truth is, is that I might be able to tell a story that makes me laugh and you laugh that happened 25 years ago. Oh my gosh. But the truth is that discrimination based on the color of my skin, that I have not known that particularity of my personhood. Discrimination based on my sexuality, that I have not known. Discrimination based on the decisions that I have made or that have been made for me on some of the parts of my past and labels then thrust upon me, that I have not known. And yet Jesus the one that brings us together responds to the particularities of our personhood. That is who Christ is. And in that passage that Kurt read, there is power in the way that Jesus responds to and interacts with the things that we might easily dismiss, even if we don't understand them. 
for Jesus gives dignity to everyone. A big part of my journey, and honestly, a center of this book, even if it's not written on every single page, was learning to recognize the Imago Dei, the image of God, present in every single one of us, regardless, slash including our, our particularities. It was learning to grapple and wrestle with my privilege, of which I didn't even know. It was learning to recognize and glean toward and thirst after justice, for this is at the heart of who God is. So what does that mean for us? That we might say, yes, the image of God is present. That, which we, that we believe in every single one of us. So let us honor who we are as individuals and collectively. For this is the body of Christ, and I am glad that you are here for you are welcome in this space. We're not going to read over the entire story again, but honestly, it's a passage that I've been camping out on for probably the last 10 years. And I've taught this passage a thousand times, it seems. But as I've continued to sit in it and with it, I just go, wow. Jesus, the way you responded was completely countercultural to everything that I've been taught, the way you responded to that woman. So if you have your Bible or if you have your iPhone or whatever preferred electronic devices in Southeast Portland, pull it out and you can slightly look at it as I just point out a couple of things. But first I want us to think about the fact that in John 4, in that passage, the passage is set up with an image of where Jesus is going, literally where he is traveling. And in that, if we were to imagine a picture, I, I said to Kurt, I said, Kurt, do I have to do a PowerPoint? He said, nope. I said, okay, good. Because I am kind of old school, and I just might as well not. But if we were to picture a map at that time, we read in it that Jesus was going from Judea, which was in the south, up to Galilee, which was in the north, but in order to go there, what would have been acceptable and what he could have and what many people think he should have done is that he should have gone around. Because in between Judea and Galilee was a town called Sychar. And Sychar was in Samaria. And so the acceptable thing for a Jewish man at that time to do was to take the long route. Because Samaritans and Jews did not associate. They did not talk to one another, let alone associate with one another. It would have been acceptable for Jesus, again, to go around. But he went through the town. He went purposefully with intention, this God of intention. He went through the town that had been labeled or that was called liar or drunkard. So think about that in the beginning, how that sets up the passage. Jesus is a God of intention. The fact that you are here this morning, the way God has met you, think about how that has happened with intentionality. There is no mistake. But again, when it comes to Jews and Samaritans, Jews believe that Samaritans were half-breeds. 
For they, according to law, or according to belief, were, were half believing in the one true God, in the Jewish God, but they were also ethnically not pure. They were considered half-breeds to, to or from a Jewish perspective because of ethnicity or religion. So if I were a Jewish man and you were a Samaritan woman and we were walking down, or even another Samaritan man, excuse me, and we were walking down the street, first of all, I should, according to law, cross the street so that we would not even come into contact with one another. But if I were unable to actually cross the street, then I'd better hope that our shadows did not touch because if even our shadows touched or crossed, I would be made unclean. Yet this God of intention, the one traveling from Judea up to Galilee, went through. The Jewish man purposely went to the woman who was a Samaritan. And think again in this time, and I write about this in the book, and Kurt and I, it seems, have talked about this a thousand times. But the woman knew who Jesus was who Jesus, this dark-skinned Jewish man, whom we would see if he were alive today as a Palestinian. That's what he would look like, a Palestinian man. Side note, I was lying in bed last night right before I watched the Motley Crue Netflix special. Don't necessarily recommend it, but some of y'all loved it, I'm sure. <laughs> Woo! I'm like, wow, Motley Crue, y'all are special. But I was, I was thinking about this morning, and I was thinking again about who Jesus is. I was thinking about the images of Christ that I grew up with, the images of a white Jesus, and that that was perfectly acceptable and normal to me, that Jesus looked like me and probably thought like me. And so what then did that create in my mind about who was in and who was out? Early 1940s, 1941, Warner Salman, famous painter, he painted the painting, you could look it up also on Google, but Head of Christ. Before the close of the 20th century, Head of Christ, which was an image of a fair-skinned Jesus, had sold more than six billion copies been reproduced more than six billion times. And as I lay in the bed with Netflix on pause last night, I thought, wait a minute, aren't we in the seven billions of humans on earth? Yep, 7.7 .7 billion, according to last night's count at about 9.23 p.m. There are almost as many reproductions of this incorrect image of Christ. What does that mean? But if we get back to our passage again, what does it mean about this God of intention, this dark-skinned Palestinian man, this God of whom we worship and sing songs to and about that we remember as we partake at the table together? What does it mean about him intentionally seeking the outsider? Theologians debate over this. Theologians, again, the study of God, those who study God, as Kurt was talking about. Some say that Jesus went to the well to get water because he was thirsty in the middle of the day at around 12 o'clock. Others say it was 6 o'clock. Regardless, we know that Jesus went with intention 
the other women who were the main could seek out or would seek out the outsider. All the other women who were the main drawing from the water people went in the early morning hours before it was too hot. But he showed up at a time in which he knew no one else would be there but her. How has this Jesus met you when you felt most like an outsider? Who in our communities is Jesus meeting and or do we need to meet as we become the little Christ in this world? But he knew that he would meet her, this God of intention. And again, and this is in the passage, but it's so interesting to think about the implications between men and women in that day. There was a prayer that many holy Jewish men prayed, and I'm slightly paraphrasing it for you. But it said, oh God, I thank you that I was not born a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And so for him to go there in the middle of the day when he knew that she would be the only one there and to ask her for this water, first of all, that was essentially him propositioning her. That's what that translated to. What did that also show? How did that begin to equal the playing field? How did that begin to give dignity to she who was on the outside? How did that begin to honor the particularities of who she was? Women were second-class citizens. Women were property. A woman's value was based solely on her ability to bear children. Some of us in this room, some women in this room are childless by choice. Some women in this room are childless not by choice. All of us probably know someone who has struggled with that. And imagine if she were sitting beside you today. How also does Jesus honor the here and now? But additionally, for Samaritan women, and I'm almost done looking at this, but again, I think it's so fascinating. And so you get a look into the last 10 nerdy years of my life where I just keep looking at this passage and I keep seeing more and I go, God, are you kidding me? There is so much in here. Samaritan women were not just at the bottom of the bottom, but they were considered perpetual menstruants. Not just once a month were they outcast because of that which flowed from their body once a month, but they were considered outcast 365 days a year. This woman was the outsider of outsiders. This woman did not belong. And yet Jesus met her in that place. Still, he approached her. With all of the, what would we call it today, baggage? 
It wasn't baggage. It was simply the particularities of who she was. Still, he engaged in conversation with her. If we look at the middle of the passage, it's obvious that she knows her theology, for lack of better word. But these two theologians went back and forth, and they continue to converse. And at the end of it, she begs for this living water that he is offering her, even if she doesn't necessarily know. And that's when Jesus then says, well, wait a minute. Here also is the truth about who you are and about her, your past. To which she says, wow, you must really actually be a holy prophet, a messiah. But I think that's the part that I was tripped up by for so long. Because at least in the world that I came from, once Jesus called her out on her sin, I said, aha, well, there's proof. She was a sinner in need of a savior. Well, that's why she needed Jesus. And essentially, it's almost like it became a tool for conversion or evangelism. And as God transforms, Jesus transforms. But he transforms as we come with who we already are, the particularities of our personhood. The truth behind that text is that again, a woman who is down here, a Samaritan woman who is then down here, had absolutely no rights. Her husband could divorce her if he didn't believe her beautiful anymore. A husband could divorce his wife if he felt like she spoiled his dinner, if he didn't like the way that she pounded the barley, if, of course, she couldn't bear children. Maybe there was more to the story. The things that had been done to her. But in this moment, Jesus honors her. It's no wonder that she begs him for the water that he offers, the water that will never make her thirsty again. Not because her sexual immorality made her realize the ways that she'd been wrong but because Jesus, God of the universe, treated her with dignity. He came to the woman with a need she was equipped to meet. She could draw water from the well, and in doing so, their exchange was mutual. He didn't hold power over her, nor did she have to change or conform to his social perspective. Amen. I write about that particular story in my book because, again, it changed me. But what does that mean for us? That if this is who Christ is, which it is true then and now, if this is how Jesus responds to every single one of us, then how then do we get to respond to one another? So three quick things, because that's what we do in sermons sometimes, right? We have three takeaway points. Side note, sometimes I preach at Episcopal or Lutheran communities, and you give what's called a homily, and they're like, don't you dare talk over 12 minutes. <laughs> but we passed the 12-minute mark today, so you're welcome. 
But the first thing from this, the first thing is that Jesus noticed her. Jesus noticed her. He went out of his way. So what does that mean for us in our communities and when we walk out the doors of this place? What does it mean to begin to notice? I often say that as a white person, one of the greatest privileges is not to have to notice. It is a privilege not to notice. It is a privilege not to notice injustice. It is a privilege not to notice oppression. It is a privilege not to have to care. Friends, we get to notice. We get to notice and to step in and to begin to be changed by the noticing. When I'm speaking specifically about entering into conversations of racial justice, People say, well, how do I do that if I live in a mostly white area? We also live in the day and age, at least for those of us who are connected online, in which we can up our noticing by filling our social media feeds with the voices of our brothers and sisters of color who have something to teach us. Regardless of social media, we can begin to notice who is and isn't sitting at our tables We can begin to notice who's already in our children's classrooms that we've maybe had the privilege not to see or not to notice. We can notice what shows we are watching. We we can notice what books we are reading. We can notice what recommendations we are giving, giving, excuse me, when we are asked to give a recommendation. We can notice. A big part of my book was marrying into a family of civil rights icon James Meredith. James Meredith, who is my father-in-law, was the first black man to integrate into the University of Mississippi in 62. He then led the Meredith March Against Fear four years later in 66. On the second day, he was shot, and he lives. But on the second day, he was shot, and because of that, Martin Luther King Jr. and Stokely Carmichael and other leaders from the SL, um, from the Southern Leadership Christian Convention came alongside him and began to march for him. And it grew into the last greatest protest movement of the civil rights movement, or protest march, excuse me. From that, the black power movement birthed. From that, King began to change his focus And some would say that his popularity began to decrease a little bit. But I tell you that because one of the noticing that happened that affected my father-in-law greatly and deeply and made him do what he did was that he noticed, he was in the U.S. Air Force for 11 years. He noticed what it was like to serve in the 1950s in Japan as a black man and to be treated with dignity simply because he was an American, not because of the color of his skin. And he said, this is where I am treated. This is how I am treated when I am in Japan. And this is how I am treated when I am at home in Mississippi. And so because of that, he did what he had to do. But it started with noticing. That's just the trippiest thing to me. 
crazy slash amazing slash all those things. But what does it mean to notice? I'm losing my pages here, mostly because this is all in my head by now. Woohoo! But the second thing is that he gave her dignity. He valued her. He showed her that he needed her. What does it mean for us to give dignity to one another? A couple weeks ago, I was speaking to a small group of women, these lovely Lutheran women up in Healdsburg, California. And I was talking about getting ready to preach on this. And I said, how do people show you dignity? And she said, well, they show me dignity by knowing my name. I was like, Marcia, that really wasn't me. You're brilliant. She said, but too often I show up to church and I'm being asked for the eighth time what my name is. And here she is, 72-year-old woman, and she goes, am I really that unforgettable? I go, Marsha, you are not. Michael? We barely got to talk because then I started talking to Kurt. My apologies. But what does it mean to remember the Michaels? To remember the Cohens, who just turned 10 on February 25th or so? who loves soccer, who's a goalie. Cohen, raise your hand, dude. C-O-H-E-N. But what does it mean to show up to this place and say, you know what, Michael, I am going to remember your name because you are a child of God. You're an image bearer. Some of us say, I just am not good at remembering names. Well, then do something about it. I, I hold this Bible not because I look at it, but because I take notes about who people are. So if I were to be here and I knew I was going to be here next week, I'd write down Michael's name, and I'd write something down about our conversation, which would have nothing to do with what he looks like on the outside. But if he, too, were a soccer player and an amazing goalie, I'd write that down. And then the week before church, even if it didn't, wasn't written here, there's something called a notes application in your phone. You could type that name in. Cohen, how do you spell your name again? And then you could look at it before you show up the next time. How would that revolutionize who we are by simply remembering? Jonathan, thank you for selling books. Madison, thank you for talking bangs with me. The last thing is this. Jesus showed dignity by entering into relationship with her. He made their exchange mutual. And we get to do the same. Who are you being prompted to notice, to invite to your table, to enter into relationship with? Who's not like you, that doesn't believe or vote like you, that doesn't look like you, that thinks differently from you, who's left-brained and you're right-brained, whatever differences you want to highlight, 
What does it mean to actually do something about the people in the world around us and to enter into relationship with one another? Again, in conversations of racial awareness, I lean toward one of my favorite theologians. I call him a prophetic voice. Write this name down, Jamar Tisby. He wrote The Color of Compromise, which is about the history of racism in the church. Phenomenal. Jamar and I are doing an event in Jackson with my father-in-law next month. Come on out if you can. But Jamar, who does a ton of work in this space and whose voice I listen to, he said it's the ARC, Awareness Relationship Commitment. That's what it means to step into these conversations. We commit to relationships with the people around us. That's what we celebrate as followers of Jesus, right? What does that mean to actually live with intentionality for our God is a God of intentionality and to step forward in relationship? Hey, I like microbrew. You like microbrew? Hey, I like to throw the ball with my dog at the park. You like to throw your ball at the dog? I can't, I can't say that second sentence. <laughs> Woo! But we do something about it. So friends, it is an honor to be here with you. It is honor, it's an honor to be back, but it's also an honor to see you, to notice you, to look you in the eyes and sometimes remember your name and to maybe even exhort you to do the same. Jesus, thank you that you are a God of intention who honors the particularities of personhood of who we are now. And you encourage us to do the same with one another. Thank you for today. Amen.